So before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about this St. Bonaventure VCU game where we saw the Bonnies outscore the Rams 45-14 to in the second half. This is not some run-of-the-mill blowout. VCU absolutely looked the part of a top-five team in the first half and gave the Bonnies all they had. St. Bonaventure just simply turned the tables in the second half, and what I saw from the Bonnies was just utterly impressive to a point that I haven't seen from them at all this year, even in the midst of what has been an incredible five-game run right now, starting with the win at Richmond. The starting five for them of Lofton, Holmes, Welch, Ashunahi, and Attaway has just formed this incredible cohesion together, and you could just see it all throughout the game on both ends of the floor. Even when the offense was struggling in the first half, you could see the seeds of it. They're beginning to just throw these crazy lob passes to not only Ashunahi, but Attaway too, who, man, can he get up. Doesn't even matter that he's 6'6". That guy leaps like a center. It is truly remarkable, but... They spent this game just throwing passes, trusting that the guy was going to know what to do with it. We saw it on the alley-oops. We saw it on the kick-out passes. Not only the guards, but from Ashunahi himself, who had probably the most impressive passing game of his entire career. They look really good. That offense is something special right now. And I just never expected them to attack the rim with a level of ferocity that we saw today. This is this was by far the best job of not only driving but passing into the paint that we've seen from this current iteration of the Bonnies. This was the hope for this team. This was something that probably needed to happen for them to hit their ceiling. But to do it at the level that they did today was incredibly unlikely. Every single play, they were just looking to get to the hoop. Kyle Lofton and Jalen Holmes have been doing this for games now. Especially Holmes once, once he got back from the back spasms. They are relentless. We didn't see that from them last year. Maybe in little tiny spurts, but certainly not at the level we're seeing it now. Attaway is just hanging in the dunker spot at, at all times. He has shown no ability to shoot so far this season, and it really doesn't matter. His defenders cannot help off of him because he is so smart at cutting to the hoop. And therein lies the key to what Bonaventure's been doing so far. If Kyle Lofton goes crashing to the hoop, who's helping off? If it's Attaway or Shunahi's guy, they're just going to slip to the rim. Kyle Lofton's going to find that pass. You can't leave Dominic Welch. Doesn't matter that he's been struggling from deep this year. That's a game that you're not going to want to play. You're not going to leave Jalen Holmes to just attack you off the dribble. And when these five are just all going at once, there's really no particular answer. You have to stop these guys on the ball. What really makes this dangerous is I'm not even sure that 
this is their best offense yet. Welch went 5 for 6 from 3 today to buoy up what had been some really poor shooting numbers. He was at about 20% in conference play so far going into today. Other than the Duquesne game, they've gotten nothing from Alejandro Vasquez off the bench. Lofton still only made three threes this season. Holmes is shooting fairly well from deep. He's at about 35%. But other than that, they're not getting any shooting from a bunch of guys who should be good shooters. Remember, in a normal college season, we'd be in mid-December right now, given the number of games the Bonnies have played. They're looking better and better every night. I think these practices are really starting to kick in, and I don't think we've seen them at their peak yet. We've still really only seen them use a Shunahi on offense as a big weapon twice. He was great in the season opener, putting up a career high in scoring. He was decent in their second game from a scoring standpoint. He hasn't hit double digits yet in A-10 play. Today, he tried to do his best Grant Golden impression and was really just spreading the wealth and spreading the ball around. There's a lot still left to unlock there. Just really the whole point of this is to say that the Bonnie's offense was magnificent today. That was a level of trust and chemistry that over the last few years I've really only seen from last year's Dayton team. They're not as good as the Flyers. It's not even worth having that conversation. But there's something special brewing. And when you have guys who trust each other in the way that these guys do, you know it. The defense wasn't quite as great, but you could just see in those final 10 minutes, they were locked in on everything. The communications were perfect. Guarding off of screens was perfect. They were switching when they needed to. Ashunahi was falling back when he needed to. And VCU just could not get past their guys. If you go back and watch these plays when their offense started to stall, around four, five, six minutes to go, they're just running continual screen and rolls on the perimeter. And these guards are not getting free. They're getting stuffed at every spot. The Bonnies are for real. I, I know I've said it three or four times, but that's just the overarching thought coming out of this. There's not too much else to say. They played an incredible game. Lofton is beginning to put up MVP-level performances. Jaron Holmes is a surefire all-conference guy at this point. And Ashunahi is a borderline lock for all defense by now. That's all coming despite the fact that they're still not getting what they should be out of Welch or Vasquez. But if the ball continues to just freely move from all of them, those guys are going to wake up. We still haven't seen Holmes have to do much as a secondary playmaker because the scoring has just been coming so easily to him. When, they be, when defenses begin to adjust, we're going to start to see that get unlocked in his game. I know that the Bonnies fans are a little worried. They're really not hanging around the bubble in many bracketologies. And not having the non-conference is going to hurt them. 
But if this team is as good as they seem to be right now, and that is, and right now that's a team that's going to go somewhere between 14 and 4 and 16 and 2 in this conference. Let's split the difference and say 15 and 3. Let's say they make it to Saturday and lose in the semifinals of the conference tournament. All of a sudden, you're looking at an 18 and 4 record with a handful of pretty quality in conference wins. They already beat Richmond and VCU. Those wins are going to carry over into March. You go 18 and 4 with a few top 100 wins on that resume, it's going to be really hard for the committee to ignore for some crappy 500 power conference team. So if you're not watching the Bonnies yet, you should be. Because they are damn enjoyable. Both on offense and defense. And we'll see what happens when SLU gets back next week. If they show some rust, all of a sudden they become incredibly vulnerable at the top of that conference. The Billikens, with what they did in the non-con, should probably still be the favorites. But St. Bonaventure is breathing right down their neck. Hello and welcome to another new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I am your host, Tyler. But once again, Matt, unfortunately, not able to join us this week. But just like Jeopardy, we got a fantastic run of guest hosts for you. This week, it's another distinguished Matt within the A10 Twitter community. Matt Ryan, the king of stats. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. It's really a, a, an honor to be on a, a podcast that, that respects the uh, respects how important the uh, Power 8 conferences are and, and the Atlantic 10's place and I'm so really glad and, and really proud to be on a podcast that that cherishes the the power eight conference uh so so valuable or valuably yeah power eight forever and for those of you who don't know much about Matt he's really got two pieces to his uh Twitter dumb more of his kind of objective views as a Dayton Flyer fan, you can find on his personal account. I know he contributes a lot to the Blackburn Review site and the Talking Out Loud podcast, too. But then he's also got a much more stat-driven analytics side, the Atlantic 10 Stats account that came out this year. and That is just filled with all kinds of fun charts and graphs. It's like a middle school math class over there. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, I, oh, well, I, I was just going to say, you know, um, I wanted to, I have my personal account, like you said, um, uh, I'm definitely pro Dayton on there. You know, I, I definitely still talk about stats and numbers on there, but if, if you're not wanting the, the heavy Dayton bias on the, the personal account, you know, the A10 stats account is there, you know, numbers can't really have that same bias that, that maybe I would be in a Dayton fan. Yeah. And these are, there's no, there's no bias in these numbers, just plenty of stats, <laughs> Plenty of cool colors. And, you know, I, I want to start things off with something that, you know, I don't even really know that much about that you're putting out here, which is your no context stats only player of the week. We've seen this three times already. Jamison Battle, Jacob Gilliard, Jalen Crutcher have all gotten the honor so far. So, you know what, why don't you give us a little bit of context as to what's kind of fueling these numbers? Really, Really, all we see is the game score. So what? So I guess just kind of using Jalen Crutcher's great week last week as an example, what are kind of the things that were driving him to being the player of the week? 
Sure. So like I um, like you kind of described there, um, there, there really is no context to, to who wins my player of the week there. Um, it, I definitely watch a lot of Atlantic 10 basketball, um, but as, as we're speaking right now, St. Joseph's and George Mason are playing. And to be honest, I'm going to give that game a pass because of those two teams that are playing. No offense to our, uh, our, our mutual pal, PD Buckets, but that, that doesn't sound like a, a, a fun night of basketball for me. Uh, so with stats, um, someone once said that, you know, with your eyes, you can watch a game better, but with stats, you can watch all the games. So I don't have to watch that um, presumed stinker of a basketball game between St. Joe's and George Mason. Um, I have the stats here to, to give me a, a decent idea of what happened. I won't know maybe as well as Petey did if he watched the game, but um, but I'll still have a good idea who played well, who played poorly. And with the player of the week, the, the no context player of the week uh, award that I've been doing, I use um, uh, John Hollinger, he came up with the stat game score. Um, John Hollinger now, he used to work for the Memphis Grizzlies. Now he writes on the athletic uh, for the NBA, uh, dealing a lot with numbers. Uh, but basically game score can give you, it, it's an all-encompassing stat that uses a bunch of different county metrics to kind of give you an idea how play, who, who is the best player in a game. Um, it uses points, it uses field goals made and attempted, free throws made and attempted, rebounds, steals, assists, blocks, um, player fouls, and turnovers to, to give you one whole number for a game, a, a bunch of games, and, and give you an idea who, who really led their team to victory and, and who maybe struggled in that game. Um, so with that metric, uh, I use each week, uh, I get all those numbers for each Atlantic 10 player. I see who has the highest game score. And like I said, no context. It doesn't matter if you lost two, won two, one went one and one, you know, anything in between. If, if you have the highest game score, you're going to get my award. And, and it's kind of funny because my, um, my no, no context stat player of the week has kind of has uh, mirrored what the conference has actually given their player of the week. Two of the three times, the only time um, being uh, Jacob Gilliard uh, won my award and, and he did not win the uh, conference player of the, award, uh, of the week award. Was that Jaron Holmes that week, I believe? Uh, I think it was. I, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, that was the that was the week that he was just absolutely filling it up from a scoring perspective, um, but wasn't really contributing a ton from an assist or rebound standpoint. We talked about that last week with Petey. So it, it kind of makes sense, and it, it shows what people value. Gilliard's a guy who does struggle to get those kind of weekly conference honors because he's not a big scorer. Yeah, definitely. And, and game score takes in not just the points that they're that they're contributing, you know, all around. Gilliard's such a, a great defensive player. He he, you know, tons of steals and and plenty of assists for Richmond. And and you know, he's a pretty good scorer as well. So game score is really good at showing that all around contribution for a player to to a game or a, a larger sample of games. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I found really interesting is when you just look at the standings for the week, you do see some teammates tied together. For example, last week we saw both Ronnie DeGray and Trey Mitchell of UMass in the top six. The week that Gilliard won, he was number two. His teammate Grant Gold, I'm sorry, he was number one, obviously, since he won. His teammate Grant Golden comes in at number two. And uh, I'm not sure there's really an analytical reason for it, but to me, I see that and... I think about that Gilliard Golden two-man game 
And this is just a perfect stat to kind of show that as one goes, the other typically goes too. Yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely, you know, inferences that you can make like that. And, and it really, um, it, it, it's really a good jumping off point for further analysis. You know, it gives us kind of a, a general idea of um, how a player did, but then we can look into more, you know, relationships and more analysis, like you just mentioned, like how Golden and Gilliard play with each other and, you know, how that backcourt free UMass last week, you know, really, really did well in, in their, in their two games uh, that they played. I, I believe the one uh, they both did particularly well, I believe it was against uh, Rhode Island in, the, in their win against Rhodey there. Yeah. And, and Ronnie DeGray is another guy who like Gilliard, not a, a typical really fill up the bucket score. And so I, I, I don't know. I find it fascinating. This is really the first time that we've seen kind of any numbers just truly praising Ronnie DeGray, who I, I personally think is a, a pretty damn interesting player at this point in his freshman year doesn't score a lot doesn't even get a ton of rebounds at some games but he's just a great mover without the ball and he's a great defender and I'm, I'm actually almost kind of interested if those things would even show up in this so that, that's something that's a little tougher to to quantify in the numbers moving off the ball but but what he has been been doing really well he's been really efficient when he's been scoring the ball so 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 far this year DeGray has a, a usage rate of 12.6 percent which is is towards the lower and it makes sense he's a freshman but his uh, effective field goal percentage is 70 percent 70.7 percent his true shooting percentage is almost as high at 69.7 percent so when he has been able to to get involved in the office he, he's really been effective when he's been able to to um to score and, and to get his shots off. So it's definitely something that's promising. And, and I think he had that one game where it really um, filled up the stat sheet and that got him on my uh, player of the week uh, runner-up, or I think he was, yeah, third runner-up that week, just that one game. But he's, he's definitely, you know, someone to, to keep an eye on as a, as a freshman. He, he's definitely been an effective score and efficient score for UMass. Yeah. And that's definitely what happened. He really filled it up on Saturday. I, Pretty sure it was a career-high scoring output for him. Or, sorry, uh, Sunday. S same thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, when they dominated Fordham, it was really just the DeGray and Trey Mitchell show the whole game through. Or, or sorry, no, he, he only had eight points in that game. I'm, I'm thinking, of, uh, thinking of the midweek game, but we'll leave that in. We all make mistakes sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that I actually found really fascinating, Mikel Mitchell, who uh, the big man for Rhode Island, who – to me, I've really just kind of seen as a talented guy who just can't keep himself out of foul trouble. He finishes in second this week, just, just a smidgen behind Crutcher for the player of the week, then comes out and has a great first half against Duquesne tonight and really started to see the Rhode Island fans starting to jump on the Mikhail Mitchell bandwagon. I know one of them even tweeted at us uh, trying to get us to give a little bit of, of – attention to what he's been doing and to me having only cut one of Rhode Island's two games last week this was really this really kind of threw up the red flag to me that Mikhail Mitchell was a guy to start keeping my eye out for yeah and, and you know last week he, he definitely had a good week and and I think it's safe to say that he hasn't necessarily been super effective and, and, and super efficient before that, but it definitely starts to seem like he, he's kind of turning the corner. You know, he had a good game against uh, Mason where, where Rhode Island 
blew out uh, George Mason and, and that got him on my list. And then, like you said, he had a pretty good first half again tonight uh, before uh, Rody blew that game against Duquesne. But um, yeah, so it, it, it seems like he's starting to find some form after kind of a, a slow start. And he's definitely, you know, someone that if he can continue to be a, um, an, an effective scorer and, and continue to contribute the same ways that he has been, he, he's definitely going to help improve um, Rody's Brody's stance in the conference. So I, w- I want to tie this into what, what I also saw as the next most fascinating thing you've been working on, which is, I don't know, probably about once a week, you release the usage rate versus true shooting percentage graph for a, a bunch of the top players in the conference. And right now, kind of that best quadrant of high usage, but effective shooting is pretty empty. And So I want to get your perspective from, once again, more of a no-context stats-only thing versus what I've been seeing with the eye tests so far this year, which is I just feel like watching these games, we have not seen as big of a kind of superstar impact where we're seeing the best guys really shine in a lot of games like we typically see in a season to this point. Do the stats back that up, or am I maybe just kind of watching the wrong games at this point? I, I think there's certain certain players that are definitely um, still being efficient scoring the ball, um, even with high usage. Um, I think after last year where there was one guy that everyone knew was the high usage, most efficient scorer, um, it, it, it might just seem – <laughs> it, they might all pale in comparison to, to Obi, but um, I, I think there's still definitely some, some players that have, you know, been able to, to score efficiently and to still be, you know, high usage, usage players for their team. Um, I mean, they haven't played in, in a month. Uh, hopefully they'll be playing soon, but Javante Perkins for SLU has, when they have been playing, has been really, really efficient scoring the ball. I think he's really taken – that um, next step in, in his career, you know, he, he definitely had lots of potential last year and he seemed like he was, he was ready for a breakout year this year. And, you know, when, before Slew had to shut the program down because of COVID, he was one that was really, you know, scoring the ball efficiently and doing it with a lot of pose- uh, possession. Um, we were talking about Ronnie DeGray, but, but his, his teammate, Trey Mitchell, I think has definitely fallen into that category. You know, he, last year, he, he really took, a lot of um, mid-range shots and, and wasn't particularly efficient at them. Um, you know, something that you, you see in a lot of freshmen who, you know, a, a team will rely, like he's highly recruited, a team will rely on him for a lot for his offense. And he kind of just did his own thing. But this year he he's, you know, knocked those down and he's really scoring the ball um, very efficiently um, so far this year for UMass. Um, Golden, uh, like we mentioned before, he, he just kind of continues to, to be able to score efficiently. You know, I, I notice a lot that, um, big men definitely do a lot better when it comes to, to scoring efficiently over the years in the A-10. Golden falls into that category. Trey Mitchell obviously would, would fall into that category. And, um, perhaps surprisingly, um, Joel Soriano at Fordham is maybe a surprise efficient scorer for um, the A-10. Um, will he fall into that category of Fordham players that do well at Fordham and win five games or something like that and then transfer to a uh, high, high D1 school? Uh, 
that's yet to be seen, but he's definitely been one of the players that have been able to to score efficiently for uh, in the A-10 so far this season. I'm really glad you mentioned Soriano because the the more I look at the graph, the more that his spot kind of jumps out to me. And I'll be sure to retweet this before we put out the pod so that everyone can find it easily. But really, you got a, a upper quadrant here where if you want to separate out the guys who have been most efficient at a super high usage, you have this group of five, Jalen Crutcher, Javante Perkins, Trey Mitchell, Joel Soriano, and Grant Golden, who actually has a higher usage than the other four guys, which is seems kind of crazy. But Soriano being in this group is certainly the biggest surprise, as you mentioned. And it's not stunning that he has a true shooting percentage over 60%. He's a super efficient player. He really doesn't shoot threes. He just kind of lives around the rim. What shocks me is that his usage rate is so high, especially given that he's had a lot of issues with staying out of foul trouble this year. That's true. But also, I mean, what else are Fordham going to do? You know, I I can't profess to watch many Fordham (laughs) games besides the Dayton one. Um, And and Soriano kind of had a quiet game against the Flyers, but but I mean, who who else is going to score uh, on that team? You know, it, it it's not as if you know Fordham had a avalanche of points that night against Dayton. Dayton really kind of self sabotaged and and lost that game themselves. So it, there, there's not a lot of options. So it's not surprising that his usage rate because it's really just who, who else are you going to go to? And and with someone scoring so efficiently, with he's you know big body, he scores it well in the paint and does pretty much nothing else. Uh, offensively, um, you know, that's a good option for for a team that's going to struggle to score like Fordham does. Yeah, and I mean, interestingly enough today, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday night, so we're just coming off of their loss to Davidson. He only put up eight points. They actually got a good game from their starting backcourt. Chris Austin had 19. Josh Navarro had 14. And Soriano actually was third in shots attempted behind those two. So it, it it is just kind of fascinating. I just I feel like when I've been watching Fordham, which admittedly is not all the games, although they they play so many standalones that I've actually watched them more this year already by the end of January than I did last year. Just feels like Soriano's not touching the ball as much, but you know that's that's where the eye test differs with the stats, and that's why we have you on here. Now, one guy where. I am actually very, very surprised that the eye test matches the stats is Grant Golden. He is sixth, uh, sorry, seventh in usage rate in the whole conference behind TJ Weeks, Ryan Daly, James Bishop, Bones Highland, Marcus Weathers, and Jordan Goodwin. And, you know, I, I, just, I really did not expect that because to me, Grant Golden is the guy who is so much better on the eye test than he is on the stat sheet. And I guess this really kind of takes into account how often he's key to the ball movement, which doesn't always quite lead to an assist, but Richmond's done a great job of featuring him in the offense this year. And he's continued to be super efficient from a scoring perspective. And and what I think he does really well, um, I've been a, a, a big Grant Golden Meyer since he's been in the conference is his passing is just really incredible. You know, he can, he can suck the defense in, you know, when he gets it low down in, in the paint and he can find the open man, a guy like Gilliard or, or anyone on, on the spiders. Um, but he, he 
can pass well. He can score from pretty much anywhere. You know, he's he's good at finishing at the rim. He's he doesn't take a lot of threes, but he's hit over fifty percent of them this season. It looks like he's taken um, thirteen, and he's hitting he's hit seven of them. So that's you know you have to respect his ability to shoot from deep. He's a decent um, mid range jump shooter as well. Um, you know, stats guys are are known to not like um, the mid range jump shot. But with a guy like Golden, he, he hits them enough that, you know, if you're a stats guy, you can say you're okay with it because it makes defenders respect, you know, that shot. So they, they can't necessarily just, you know, expect him to go to the paint every time. They can't expect him just to shoot a three every time. He might, you know, hit that mid-range jumper. He might take that mid-range jumper and, it, and the defender has to respect it. So there, there's so many things that he does well that it, it makes him – you know, a very efficient score be just because the defenses can't lock in on one thing. If, if you, you know, try to sag off him and go to the, um, and keep him off the rim, he's going to either shoot a mid range, shoot a three or find the open man. You know, if you, if you're trying to deny him, uh, from a, a jump shot, he's going to go down low and, and beat you there. So golden just does really everything really well. And, and it makes him an efficient score and, and the stats back that up. Yeah. And, so I want to I want to wrap this little chat up with a guy that I know you've watched basically all of his games, so that you got plenty of context in your mind. Jalen Crutcher. He has a higher true shooting. The only sorry, let me rephrase that. The only guys that have a higher true shooting percentage than him are all guys who have usage rates at least four percent lower. Many of them much lower. So you're the one who's staring at this graph far more than anyone else does Jalen Crutcher need to shoot the ball more so I I think yes (laughs) short answer yes he you know we mentioned Obi already he he obviously isn't there to to be the safety valve for the for the Dayton offense and and Jalen Crutcher you know the the question before the the start of the season was you know would he be able to to step into that primary scorer role you know he obviously had um he had Obi last year. He he had a huge assist rate last year, and, and a lot of them go into Obi. Uh, this year, he he wouldn't have that. You know, he'd have a lot of um, untested guys. Guys, you know, maybe weren't weren't starting last year on, on that great team, and, and now are going to be playing starters minutes. And would he be able to? Um, would he be able to be the the main cog in the the? Dayton offense and I think at the beginning of the season you could you could be hesitant and, and maybe even say no but but since that forum loss I think he's really stepped up and, and he's really become a, a high usage high efficient efficiency score um, you know last year he, he maybe wasn't quite as efficient in the scoring as he was this year but he's really um, taken you know taken that challenge to, to be the main the main threat on Dayton's offense and, and you know he's he, the, the area he's I think he's improved the most is his ability to, to score at the rim because he's always been a great three-point shooter he's always been able dangerous you know shooting jump shots anywhere on the court um, but this year he, he, he's really improved at the rim uh, just for example for last year he made 56 percent of his attempts at the rim so far this year he has made 71 uh, percent of his attempts at the rim so that's a huge jump and, and those shots are, are going to be there um, they're, they're the most efficient on the court, you know, those shots at the rim. And, and if Jalen's able to continue to, to, to score that well at the rim and get to the rim as effectively as he has so far this season, you know, he's going to be able to continue to be 
that high fit or high usage score that's going to lead Dayton to victory. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing that he's increased his rim numbers because the Dayton paint is just more clogged than it used to be. Last year, yeah. despite yeah. having like a paint bound superstar in Obi, he could stretch the floor. Trey Landers could stretch the floor. Ryan Meisel could stretch the floor. And they just they just don't have that level of spacing anymore. Yeah, and he has to beat, you know, he he's the main focus of defenses now. It's not Obi and, and you know, he might have been second last season, but but I'm first person on the scouting report for Dayton is gonna be Jalen Crutcher. And I think he's kinda similar with his ability to get to the rim he he's another one of those players that can beat you from anywhere and that means you know defenses can't hone in on one thing whereas you know if it was last year's Jalen playing on this year's team you know they know okay he if we prevent the jump shot you know he's not great at finishing at the rim we can let you know someone on uh, a help defender you know a big man help defender when he goes to the hoop can can help stop him and, and probably be pretty effective in stopping him from scoring at the basket but this year he's just been so good at getting to the basket you know he's he's shooting um he's shooting over 45 percent from three so he's just you know anywhere on the court he can hurt you and and that's what makes a, a college basketball player an efficient scorer yeah and so We'll expand out of that that kind of golden, no pun intended, group up in the top quadrant. And two areas that I kind of have my eye on. We'll start with the guys who are at super high usage rates. You got Bones Highland, James Bishop, Ryan Daly, TJ Weeks, Marcus Weathers are really the five who are above about 28% here. All of them fall into this center band that you've drawn of basically just kind of mediocrity in terms of true shooting. Is there any of those guys that you could see really just having a a great efficient stretch from them to get them out of that band? Or are we asking too much for a guy like James Bishop, who really these numbers back up what you're, what I'm looking at which is that he's basically an average shooter who just has the ball in his hands all the time. And that's because he takes some bad shots. Could any of these guys really kind of boost themselves up or is the high usage rate what's gluing them to the middle anyway? So I think for a lot of them, um, like guys like Bones and, and Daly and, and Bishop and, and Jordan Goodwin, just the type of player they are, um, you know, guards, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, some of those players are good at the rim. They're gonna they score well when they get to the hoop, but a lot of them they're taking more jump shots. They're they're more around the perimeter. Um, I think it's harder for them to be you know as efficient as maybe like a, a Trey Mitchell or a Grant Golden or a, um, a Javante Perkins who just gets to the rim so with such ease. Um, the one guy I, I'm just waiting for him to to break out is Marcus Weathers. Last season, you know, him and Michael Hughes, they were really efficient around the hoop. They were really good, you know, scores. And it, it wasn't really anything outside of the paint that made them that. They were, they just, you know, dominated points in the paint and they they became, you know, legitimate A-10 threats because of, because of their play there. Um, you know, Duquesne has kind of been on a, a roller coaster season to, to say the least. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that. Um, you know, Hughes has just been 
no help basically. Um, I didn't see his his stat lines tonight. I don't know if he improved, but just watching him in that Dayton game, he looked like a completely different player. And it's really it, it, it seemed to have fallen on Weather's shoulders to to carry the entire load. And and you know he scored. I believe it was you know Duquesne's first ten points in that Dayton game. Um, but then I think he may have had two more points the rest of the game. And I think he's just being relied on to to do everything to provide everything for. Uh, the Dukes, especially after since Derek Carey left. Um, so I, I, I just think he needs to kind of get back to doing what he does best. You know, he hit two threes in that Dayton game, but that's not his game. He's, he's not a jump shooter. He, he's, you know, one of the best, he was one of the best post players um, in the conference last season. And it just seems like the, the extra usage, usage has really, you know, affected him and, and made him less efficient than he was last season. So I think if he just kind of gets back to doing what he does best, post-ups, you know, offensive rebounds, um, playing in that dunker spot, I think he can get back to, to being a, a high-efficiency player. Yeah, so, you know, when the A-10 doesn't do us any favors with the Wednesday schedule, sometimes we have to make tough choices, and I know you probably smartly had your eye on Bonnie's against VCU today. I was more so focused on that Duquesne-Rhode Island game, and, you know, both of those guys you, both of those guys you just mentioned, Weathers and Hughes, They've been the big disappointments for the Dukes because without carry now, they have to rely on them, as you mentioned. And the first half, we, we really just didn't see much from either of them yet again. Hughes got his second foul about halfway through, and so he was glued to the bench. Weathers didn't do a ton. The second half, we really started to see Duquesne focus on those two inside again. Those two and Andre Harris, the freshman off the bench who was – really good in his little stretch there, but they started attacking the rim again. Weathers ended up with an inefficient three for 11 for the game, but was great in the second half. Hughes went seven for nine. And I really felt like it was the work that those two and Andre Harris were doing in the paint that really kind of powered Duquesne back into that game and led to their win. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, the, the route that they, um, but they need to to go, you know, put put the burden on those guys' shoulders. But it needs to be what they do best. You know, I opened the the box score while you're talking there and see whether shot three threes that he missed, and he shot three for eleven, you know, from the field the entire game. But it it's good to see Michael Hughes have a really efficient stat line in this one. Um, he was a player that that you know maybe isn't you know someone like an Obi where he's going to be a lottery pick, but maybe he's a guy that I thought last year could maybe you know get a two way contract in in the NBA where he's you know super super efficient scoring when he does have the ball. He's very athletic. He plays really tough defense. He gets a lot of rebounds, a lot of steals, a lot of blocks, and and I thought he could have maybe been kind of like a a fringe NBA guy, but uh, just his his offensive output this year has kind of dash any you know distant pipe dream that that might have been yeah and uh, you know his path to the NBA was probably a little tough anyway because of his lack of a jump shot but he just hasn't been as much of a presence this year and it hasn't even been foul trouble which is what has plagued him so much in the past he whatever it is that's plaguing him and weathers fingers crossed as a as a Duquesne fan that they kicked it in the second half but the two of them just haven't looked quite as engaged all year as they did last season. They really kind of got that back in this game today. So fingers crossed, but 
if they keep hovering around this line, I don't expect this line of kind of mediocrity and true shooting. I, I don't expect Duquesne to boost themselves up at all in February. Yeah. So uh, just a, a few guys that kind of stood out to me. I mentioned Bones Highland. He's third in usage rate in the conference, but just kind of hovering a, a little bit above average in true shooting. And to me, he's the perfect example of the paradox that you get when comparing these two together, where I feel like Bones Highland is a more efficient shooter, or at least should be a more efficient shooter than the numbers are showing us this year. But a lot of that is because of the extra burden that he has had to put upon himself because of VCU's lack of scoring. And even though he's gone, I guess we got to take a minute to just really discuss how special Obi Toppin really was last year that he didn't fall into that. Yeah. I I mean, and that's, you know, that's why he's, he's playing at Madison square garden now. Um, He's a guy that, you know, you could, you could, you could rely on him basically every night to, to bail you out, you know, not that, you know, the Dayton offense needs a lot of bailing out, you know, things, they, they drew it up really well to get him good looks and, and to, to emphasize his strengths, but he had just had so many strengths that, that he was able to make, you know, everything look really, really easy. So it, it, it's, you know, it's been mentioned to death for, for Dayton fans, I'm sure. You know, I know I'm sick of hearing it, but how Obi was, you know, kind of a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime player for, for the Flyers. But really, he's probably like a once-in-a-decade player for A-10, you know, the whole conference. It, it, it's, not, it's not every day that you have a guy like Obi come into play in, in the Atlantic 10. So he, he's definitely kind of a, a, rare, a rare bird for um, the entire conference, really. Yeah, and so I want to, I want to kind of wrap it up by wrap up this section by talking about a few guys who are a little bit lower in usage rate, kind of hovering around the twenty to twenty three percent mark, but are all significantly above average in true shooting. You've Young Jun Lee, who's like a, a shooting star in this. He's above seventy percent true shooting. The only other guys who can say that are under fifteen percent in usage. Uh, Jameer Watkins of VCU, I'm kind of surprised to see his usage rate so high. Carter Collins, Taylor Funk, Ibby Watson, Gibson Jimerson, and the mysterious freshman Mustafa Amzil making a great impression on the graph. Um, I guess uh, kind of below those, uh, a little bit above those guys in usage, but below them in true shooting, Jamison Battle. Are there any of these guys that you would have your eye on going forward and say that they could keep up this fantastic shooting with a higher usage, kind of get themselves into that great quadrant that we talked about at the top. To me, it's Ibby Watson. I, I think he, I think you could bump him up to a borderline crutcher level of usage and he would still keep his true shooting. Um, Hyun Jung Lee, I think could maybe get into that quadrant. He'd see a drop in his shooting if he boosted his usage, but those are the two guys I'd have my eye on. Yeah, I think I think those are great great examples because of what they do well. They they're both you know just they seem to be dead eyes from from three point range. You know, Lee is is I believe he's shooting still over. Well, it's, it, it's dipped below fifty percent, but he was he was above fifty percent from three for a long time. He's at forty seven point nine percent now, and and 
I think he can continue to do that. And he's taken 71 three pointers this season. Um, you know, he, he probably can't shoot 47%, but I think we know that he, he's definitely going to be in those high thirties come, come season's end. And, and I think we can bump up his usage and, and see that continue. Um, it'd be as a Dayton fan, I've kind of been a little frustrated with his play this year. You know, he's definitely been efficient when scoring the ball, but I think he needs to, he kind of needs to, to look for his shot more too. Like he needs to bump up his usage because, you know, right now we talked about Jalen and, and how consistent he's been, you know, putting points in the basket. But um, I, I think the flyers, you know, they need basically someone else to, to fill it up every night. And, you know, there, there's been some outbursts from some freshmen, you know, amzil has been, been great, you know, since he's basically come off the plane and, and has been lighting it up for the flyers, but you, you would expect freshmen to, to kind of hit that regression some point, you know, other guys, the other freshmen that have started to get more playing time on the flyers. Um, you can't really rely on them to put, you know, eight, 10 points up every night. So we really need it be to, to shoot more because, because he has, he's again, one of those players that can, score from anywhere on the you know he can score at the rim he can score from the mid-range and he can score from three and it just feel I feel like he's not looking for a shot enough in, in some games and, and if he if he can consistently you know be in that 15 18 point range um, I think Dayton's going to be in a lot better position rather than trying to hope you know for you know Mustafa to continue his great play you know consistently and hope one of those other freshmen um, step up yeah, and with Ibby Watson, not only have we seen him not necessarily struggle when he bumps up his shot attempts in a given game, but even just look at his numbers this year compared to last season, despite the fact that he is being used a lot more. Field goal percentage is down about 2%, but three-point percentage up 5%. He's shooting almost the exact same at the foul line. We're, we're talking about decimal, decimal points there. So he has kind of proven that the volume of shots does not matter. All that matters to him is that beautiful three-point shooting form he has. Yeah. Um, and another nugget I want to throw in for Dayton fans here, Mustafa Amzil right now, almost the exact same true shooting percentage as Chase Johnson, despite about a 2.5% <laughs> uh, usage rating. You know, I, I certainly trusted Chase Johnson a little bit more on defense, I think that Dayton loses a little bit of what they had with being able to play Johnson at the five defensively. But, you know, Mustafa Amzil is basically the same right now on offense. And if he keeps developing over the next month, then he's actually just going to be better for this team. Yeah, agreed. You know, he's been really impressive since, since he basically got off the plane and, and, went in for that first game. I think it was against LaSalle. Obviously that, you know, the result didn't go Dayton's way that day, but, but he was, you know, the one bright spot in, in that loss. And, and he's, you know, continued just to be impressive. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting to, to see him, you know, he's had experience playing internationally. And I think that's really helped him, you know, not to be over, you know, be over stimulated from his, from just kind of, going right into it you know he he's another player who you know you, you can't let him shoot anywhere he, he's the best finisher at the rim for the flyers this season he's finished 85 percent of his attempts at the rim and you know not to say that he's on the same level as ob but 
that is higher than Obi. It's obviously a lot less attempts, and you know, I don't want anyone to to say he's the next Obi. Um, but it, it's been really impressive, and you know, partner that with forty one percent from three, and he's hitting you know over fifty seven percent of his mid range shots. And he's just a player that you know anywhere on the court he can beat you, and you know he's going to be the he, he's definitely going to be a focus of defenses, you know, he, he, and he's one that is going to really help Jalen, you know, kind of ease some of the burden that that's on Jalen Crutcher's shoulders when it comes to scoring for Dayton. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the tr- the rim shooting percentage compared to Obi. That's where sometimes not having the context does kind of hurt, where. Yeah, Obi caught some fantastic alley-oops last year, but he was creating a lot of that stuff himself. And Omzeal is really shooting great around the rim because of his cutting ability and his ability to get open as opposed to really kind of working it out himself. Although I will say he's he's got a pretty nice finishing when he gets the ball at the foul line and just goes. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, he – he's just going to get better. You know, I think if, if he's not Obi, um, but I think, and there's been a lot of criticisms of Anthony Grant's coaching this year. Uh, but I think one thing that, that we can be confident in is, you know, if, if Amzil stays with the Dayton program, um, he's going to get better next year. He's going to get better the year after. And, and he's going to be, you know, a player that, that we can depend on uh, when it comes to, you know, being taking big shots and, and, being the one who's going to really be the efficient scorer and, and take the most shots for the Flyers in the future. Yeah, and we'll, we'll wrap up the offensive discussion with this. Uh, two Davidson guys, you just went in depth on Hyunjun Lee, and I got kind of distracted by the Amzil talk. Um, <laughs> my, my response on Lee was just simply, he's still mostly a catch-and-shoot guy. We don't see him do much off the dribble yet. I'm sure we won't until next year when – Grady and Collins are both most likely gone. He's going to have to take over that role. And so going into next season, I'm really curious to see where that little bubble ends up. But his teammate, Kellen Grady, is the only guy that is just dead on your average line um, for true shooting that kind of shifts as the usage rate shifts. And, you know, I've been really impressed by what he's been doing lately. He's been just kind of playing himself more into the flow of the game. And so I, I, he's actually making Davidson basketball a little bit more exciting here in the, these past few weeks. I think that he could kind of carry himself above that line with his usage rate really kind of staying in the same ballpark. Yeah, I think so. And I think he, he's definitely um... – He's definitely struggled the the first part of the season. I think. Um, I think the Dayton game he played fantastically in the uh, stat preview on Blackburn Review. I kind of mentioned how he'd been kind of mediocre, especially for a preseason All First First Team A10 player, and then he went and nearly beat Dayton himself um, in that game. And he he's done you know a lot better. He's he's shooting a little bit better from three. Um, he's always been a good jump shooter, but he's really pretty average so far before that Dayton game when it comes to uh, shooting from deep and I think it's just gonna you know it might might see some positive regression to the mean there where we see his shooting improve back to kind of the levels that that we would expect for him and, and I think that'll just help Davidson getting him to the levels that that we're used to seeing him 
Yeah. Um, oh, one, one other guy. I don't want to lose this before we move on. Uh, Fats Russell, another dude in the same situation as Grady, who's kind of struggled this year. His usage rate is way down. His true shooting's way down. And I mean, that, that pretty much just sums up his year. I, I think, to be honest with you, I think that kind of sums up his career. He, he's always been a high usage, low efficiency, low efficiency guy. He, he's never really been, you know, one that's going to have a high points per possession, but he's just so integral into the, uh, into the roadie offense that, you know, you just kind of have to live with it. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, they're below 500. And I think that's kind of the, the territory that they're going to stay with if, Fats is going to be the one that is, you know, driving the offense and taking the most shots, and just, you know, he's gonna he's gonna get plenty of assists, um, but he's definitely gonna find his own shot plenty of times too. And I just think, you know, it, unless there's a really drastic improvement in his usage or in his um, efficiency and his true shooting, it, it's just kind of going to be a ho hum, you know, middle of the road year for a roadie the rest of the year. Yeah, and we, you know, we saw it before two years ago. If we had pulled up this graph, usage rate probably would have been about the same, and the true shooting would have just been utterly in the basement. And then we saw him get crazy hot to end the year, upset VCU, make a little run in the A10 tournament. So I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna count Fats Russell out when it comes to a hot streak to fix up his stats before the end of the year. And, and to be fair, he might, you know, see some we mentioned positive regression uh, for, for Grady. Um, we might see the same thing for him because he's shooting 24% from three. And I, I don't think he's a, a great three point shooter, but I don't think he's that bad. So I think we can see, we'll definitely see that improve. Um, we'll improve to a level that we'll, you know, see Rody compete for a, a top four bid. Um, probably not, um, but at least, <laughs> at least give him more, you know, more better than 24%, which he's shooting right now. Yep. And so we'll, we'll, we'll carry this over now to the defensive side of the ball. You got a steal rate. You, you love to compare the steal rate and the block rate. And, you know, I, I just kind of want to point out the three big outliers here. Hassan Ward, whose block rate is through the roof. His teammate, Jimmy Clark, who leads the league in steal rate. And then, oh, big surprise here, Jacob Gilliard, also uh, right there with Clark in terms of steal rate. And 0% block rate, which I guess is not surprising for a 5'9 guy. I know this particular chart is really telling you a lot, something that you've been excited about. So, you know, I'm just going to kind of let you steer the car here. Sure. So... Um, Seth Partnow, who used to work for the Milwaukee Bucks um, in their analytics department and now writes for The Athletic talking about analytics in the NBA, um, he mentioned that, you know, any player that has above a 2% steal rate and a 2% block rate is kind of a good good way to gauge if he's athletic enough for the NBA. Um, now, obviously, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that a player will be successful in the NBA or they'll make it or they'll, you know, or they'll be good enough, anything like that. There's obviously a lot of factors, but it, it's at least a good gauge to see if they have the athleticism necessary to, um, to compete at that level. Um, a, a player we mentioned earlier regarding Duquesne, Michael Hughes is kind of on that 2% of each um, threshold. He, he, he's been his entire career where he's had 2% block rate and 2% above a 2% steal rate. Um, but we see some guys in there this year that are, are 
you know, some guys you'd expect, like Asuna Sumi, um, we, we obviously would expect him to have a high block rate. Um, the two, or uh, Malik Martin for, um, is in there. Um, and then, like you said, some of the VCU guys, guys like Hassan Ward. Uh, Jimmy Clark is just below the 2% block rate, but he definitely, he, he, like you said, he's one of the leaders in terms of steal rate. And, it, you know, Hassan Ward and, and Clark are just, just barely above the, the 15 minutes played threshold that I have here for this chart. Uh, but it really just kind of shows just like what, what type of team that VCU you're going to face pretty much year in and year out. You know, these guys are younger guys. They're, they're you know, rotational guys, but they're just, you know, guys that are going to, you know, play dogged defense on you and, and really what you would expect from, from VCU. Yeah. I, you know, Hassan Ward really impressed me early on in the year was just, skulking around the rim swatting everything in sight and I guess the fact that he is so firmly in over both of those two percent lines despite not playing a a ton of minutes compared to really what I personally have hoped he would is remarkable the the man's a freak he's kind of he's kind of the I don't even want to say the successor to the throne of the Michael Hughes impacts everything on the defensive end because with Hughes' struggles this year, Ward's kind of just taking it from him now. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I had the uh, the the VCU uh, Bonnie's game on before we started talking here. And, you know, he was just all over the place making plays. You know, he had a bunch of blocks. He, he was, you know, a bunch of rebounds and, you know, a couple points. He, he's not quite the uh, efficient scorer that, that maybe they would be looking for. Um, to, to make it to that next level of the NBA, but just defensively, he's going to be, you know, the 18, 15, 18, 20 minutes that he's in, he's going to be a, a nightmare for whoever he's guarding. Yeah. So another one of my favorite, really my two favorite things here, number one, as we've, t- as we just mentioned with Hassan Ward, the VCU kind of gold is just peppered all over this chart in impressive spots. We mentioned Ward. We mentioned Jimmy Clark. Corey Douglas, he is way up there in blocks, top five in the conference in block rate, kind of hanging right on the edge of the the 2% steal rate. Keyshawn Curry, just barely in on steal rate, but he crosses both of those lines too. And you know, this is if this isn't the epitome of havoc, I, I don't know really what is. Right, exactly. It's just, you know, it, it, it seems like you can, you know, change the names, but you're going to have three or four guys probably on, on every VCU team every year that are going to probably fit into this above 2.2% block rate and above 2% steal rate. You know, they're always going to have a handful of guys that can, can probably guard multiple positions and, and just make your life miserable on offense. And this is what we weren't seeing from the Rams last year when they just collapsed down the stretch. And it, yeah, definitely. You know, it was it was a rough loss to Bonaventure to fall apart in the second half like this, but it's actually these guys, not necessarily the offensive players, that give me the reason to believe that VCU's gonna hold it together this year. Yeah, and I think the 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 fall falling apart from um t- in tonight's game was was primarily due to the offensive struggles that they have, you know, they finished with a 85 offensive rating, um, a 39, 66% um, 
effective field goal percentage. Uh, but even with that, you know, they, they, they pulled down nearly half of offensive, their offensive rebounding opportunities. Um, so, and, and they played tough defense. They, they held uh, Bonaventure to 25 points in that first half. So, you know, defense rebounding, that's how VCU is going to beat you. You know, can you, you know, squeeze enough points out of, out of a, of your offense to, to beat them um, because they're going to make it tough every night. You know, can they score enough to, to really make the deep run in the, in the conference that's yet to be run, but you definitely know that they're going to play tough defense. So the Rams defense has been great this year, but one team that's really kind of struggled on that end is GW. And, you know, I, I know it's a small sample size, but Ricky Lindo, the transfer from Maryland who just became eligible this was a guy that I was, I was really excited about as a sleeper going into the year, not realizing that the NCAA didn't grant his waiver. He gets in with the kind of the blanket. Yeah, everybody, everybody plays. Everyone in. <laughs> um, so he's, not, he's actually sharing the front court quite a bit with Chase Parr, who is probably the more effective offensive player, but leaves a lot to be desired from your center on the defensive end. And now we see Lindo really kind of alone in this group by himself where he has a 5% steal rate. Only guy who is at that level who is above the 2% block rate. Um, I actually see the steal rate probably going down as the sample grows, but that block rate actually could keep going up. And from what I've seen in limited minutes, he seems like he should be able to stay in this grouping. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, they, you know, are, are shut down for a little bit because of COVID. Um, so it'll be interesting to see just kind of how he bounces back, you know, coming in, only playing two games so far. But he's definitely offered a lot more defensively than, I mean, pretty much anyone on George Washington. You know, they're, they're definitely not a good offensive team. They're, they're ranked 285th in Ken Palm when it comes to defensive rating. So they're, they're, they're really looking for anyone. And, and I think, um, cause they're, they're pretty decent on offense, but if he gets more playing time and he can really kind of help stir up the, the colonials on defense, they can be a little more respectable. You know, I don't think they're going to make any great waves in the conference, but, but really you can only improve their defensive performance and, and giving him more minutes, I think we'll definitely be able to do that. So, Last thing with this, just kind of pulling from this graph. If you had to pick a defensive player of the year for the conference right now, just kind of in the way that you would interpret these numbers, who would you go with? Because it's, it's very interesting. It doesn't leave anything obvious. Like we said, Warden Clark, fantastic outliers, don't play a ton of minutes. Yeah. Jacob Gilliard's another outlier, but really does all of his damage up at the top of the key. Um, a lot of guys who were kind of dominating both of those categories, but are compressed a lot more to the middle. So I'm curious to see what your call would be. I think it would be, you, you kind of have to make your, narrow down your candidates um, looking at one or the other. So I think Asuna Suni, um, if Bonaventure continues to play well, um, he's, he's one of the higher block rates in the conference. It looks like he is around fifth when it comes to that. And, you know, if Bonaventure continues to have, have a successful season and he continues to put up these type of numbers, I think you have to consider him. 
And on the other access, you know, along the same lines, though, uh, Jacob Gilliard, you know, his steal rate second in the in the conference. Um, if Richmond, you know, maybe finishes top four, um, he has, you know, his first or second in steal rate come season's end. I think you definitely have to consider him. So it might come down to to one of those guys and, and you know, maybe whose team performed better, you know, who, who had a bigger impact on their teams winning and losing. And they're putting up individually those high numbers in either steal rate or block rate. Can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll leave the analytics side and go into more of, as, as we said beforehand, you got your separate accounts. We'll go into more of your other account. And I'm not talking about Scottish football here. I'm talking about <laughs> the like Dayton to, Flyers. Um, yeah. Well, my team's my team is is a disaster when it comes to uh, Scottish soccer this season. So the less talk about them, the the better. Can't say that I have uh, that I would have any idea about that. But um, <laughs> so the Dayton Flyers. You know, we're all still depressed that they lost to Fordham. It's probably going to go one and seventeen. Um, doing so after they lost to LaSalle certainly didn't help. But as we talked about with Petey last week, they're starting to look really good. So, how are you feeling right now? Is this team still a double buy contender? I, you know, me, me and Petey kind of debated that last week, and Dayton came out blew the doors off of GW in the first half. And then once again, faded in the second half. Yeah. Um, I, I think they will be around that fourth, fifth range, you know, maybe just miss out uh, on the last day or maybe just sneak in on the last day of, of, of games. It, it's kind of hard to tell because it's, it's kind of hard to, you, you can predict, you know, okay, well, Dayton beat, you know, maybe they'll split with SLU. Maybe they'll split with VCD, uh, VCU, you know, maybe an optimistic Dayton fan is telling themselves that, but, as Slew just proved, we don't know how many of these games are going to play. We don't know, you know, we might come season's end where, um, you know, teams are play, have played different amount of games and, and it's really hard to predict, but I think Dayton is definitely, they seem to be figuring out that, you know, the small lineup is the way to go. Um, and Jalen Crutcher has figured out that he needs to be the top scorer every night. He needs to put up 20 at least a night. He needs to, you know, shoot, efficiently he needs to be able to find you know basically take charge of the entire game and um and, and really you know be be the you know the quote-unquote man for Dayton to be anywhere near the top four of the conference and and I think we also need to see less of um less big lineups you know I think Jordy can definitely Jordy Shimanga can still provide um usage he, he, you know still bring down rebounds he's, he can still score in the paint he, we're not going to expect him ever to be you know average double digit points but he, he can still play a role but I think he needs to see less minutes in the game you know starting if he wants to start still if Anthony Grant wants to put him in the starting lineup that's fine just it's not who starts it's more who finishes and I think we need to see his, his minutes reduced um, maybe not eliminated entirely but we definitely need to see his minutes reduced and um, more of the smaller lineup, give, give some of the younger guys, you know, they may be inexperienced. They may make us, you know, frustrated with, with freshman mistakes, but, but give them a chance to, to learn and, and contribute. So one of those guys who's made a lot of freshman mistakes and a, a dude that I really was just not that enthused by until this last week or so, Zimi Nokeji. I could finally say his name. 
<laughs> it only took like seven months or I, hell, I guess it's been a year since he transferred from Florida state. Um, you, you know, to me, he was just kind of just a body on the court at the start of his time. He was really just floating around the three point line. And now we start to see his value and it goes perfectly hand in hand with what you're saying, going smaller, using him more at the five. And he's fantastic at that on offense because he has so much athleticism around the rim. My dad has started calling him baby Obi. And, <laughs> you know, it, it, it'll never be the same, but he's not that far off athletically. Yeah. And he's another guy, you know, again, you know, the, the small sample alarm should be going off in your head. Um, but, but he is, he's finished at the rim really well, obviously in limited minutes, you know, he just really got into the rotation this year, but, but he's hitting 75% of his field goals at the rim. Um, and again, you know, much smaller sample, um, but that's pretty similar to, to what Obi was around in his career. So it, it, it's not a, a crazy comparison. He needs to you know be a little more consistent um, when it comes to, to his play out there. Um, but I think giving him more minutes will help build him that confidence and, and, and let him let him become more consistent when he's out there. Yeah, and even increasing his role in this offense, I'm not sure it's going to affect the sample variant. He seems to really want to take more of his bad shots from three than in the paint. So I, I'm not too worried. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you know he's taken 64% of his shots from three this year. Um, I, I definitely think we need to see that tilted um, more towards at the rim but it's probably just what he's been given. And, and you know, he, he's been open. I, I don't think he's really taken a lot of contested threes. He's been open. Um, but I just think he needs to maybe, you know, take the three every now and again to keep, keep teams honest, but really his athleticism, there, there's no reason to, for why he should be taking two out of three shots from three instead of um, two out of three shots at the rim. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, the only thing that really concerns me with him is, and really this is my only concern with going small a little bit more often. We saw it, we saw it in the Davidson game where Luka Brejkovic just kind of pushed him around. He's just, he's so athletic, but he's not ready for physical centers on the defensive end. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, guys like that, but to be honest with you, if Luka Brejkovic against a team like, Davidson is shooting it more than someone like a Kellen Grady or Carter Collins or um, Hyung Young Lee. Um, I'll take that. Even if it's a, a, a defensive mismatch against Simi, you know, having a, a team's fourth option, I'm, I'm going to, you know, live with those results. If, if it means that we, we get his offensive contributions. I I'm with you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I, I took a lot of crap for saying this, I actually love Mule Sissoko as a rebounder. And I uh, think that no. the Dayton fan base has just completely turned on him for everything. Yeah. He, His, he, he has great uh, hands going no. up for the ball, but not <laughs> any, but not when his hands are below his shoulders. Um, so, so you is, know what? I, I, won't, I won't take any slander when it comes to his rebounding. Well, uh, you, you might get some now. So this was a little before your um, – Dayton time, but there was a, my freshman year at Dayton, there was a, a big man kind of along a similar style named uh, Desmond Adajihi, I think is how you pronounce his name. And um, he was kind of a big guy too. And, and my roommate and I, you know, wanted to love him and because he was just a big guy and, and 
know, he, he seemed like he was, you know, funny. Um, but come season's end, our freshman year, he, he dubbed him to, my roommate dubbed him to have uh, ping pong paddles for hands. And I feel like uh, Sissoko is just the exact same way. You know, he, he can't grab a ball. He, he can constantly is, um, is putting the ball on the floor whenever he has like a putback attempt or Jalen will find him, you know, cutting to the rim. He, he's constantly losing the ball. And, and I just, don't think he's a division one <laughs> basketball player. So I said before that I would like to see um, Jordy's minutes reduced. I'd like to see Sissoko's minutes removed altogether. Cause he just, it, he kills Dayton when he's on the floor. Um, I haven't updated the numbers recently, but like looking at the, um, I, I can pull lineup data and every lineup that he, he was in had a negative net rating, both offensively, you know, the offensive net rating minus defensive net rating um, it was always negative when he was on the floor. So he just kills Dayton whenever he's he's on the court. So he, he actually reminds me of a, a Duquesne big man from a similar time period, Morakinia Williams, who was only there, I believe, two seasons, comes in as a transfer from Kentucky back uh, right before the Calipari era started. I actually think he might have transferred because Calipari came in, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, just a, a big dude. A very intimidating body, didn't get pushed around, and got his hands on everything, even though he couldn't necessarily uh, grip the ball all the time. <laughs> he was always there for the tips. And by, his, by the end of his senior year, he'd kind of turned himself into an intimidating defender, a useful five fouls guy. And the hands got better. He was a fantastic rebounder. That's kind of my hope for Sissoko. I just that he can be a guy who's going to always use his five fouls. And if he can just get the grip a little bit better over the summer, because he, he tips so many rebounds and that's the great indication of a guy who can become a great rebounder, even if he isn't right now. So that's where I'm holding out my hope there. Uh, you know, can't erase him entirely because if Jordy falls back into his bad foul habits again, they're going to need him to keep guys away from the rim. So I, I just, I hope he can figure it out. I hope so too. I'm just, just not confident. <laughs> so the one discussion, just another guy kind of on who was on the fringes of the rotation. And I, I, I've been dying to have this talk ever since the Davidson game. Elijah Weaver is healthy now. And with Rodney Chapman out, Weaver is just beyond critical to this team. I I love what he is doing to fit into this offense. I actually think he just moves the ball better than Chapman. And, you know, even though Rodney, to me, is still an all-conference, an all-defensive team guy, I think Weaver's just better for this offense with Crutcher and Watson on the court. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think, you know, he, he seems to have um, a, a few more offensive tricks in his bag but but really he, he's great at playing the point guard role um you know he's got a 33.4 percent assist rate you know that's highest on the flyers obviously he has a smaller sample than the rest of the team not playing in all the games um but his, his turnover rate compared to rodney the the his assist rate is slightly higher than rodney chapman's um but his turnover rate is nine percent less and you know rodney was just turning the ball over left right and center when he was playing you know when he was healthy um, so with Weaver, he, he's been able to kind of lock down a lot of those um, turnover issues. They're, it's still a little higher than, than I would like. I just think that's kind of going to be Dayton's 
MO this year. Um, a, a lot of turnover just based on how they play with, with a lot of passing and, and um, a lot of the moving of the ball. It, it's going to lead to a lot of turnovers. But but even if you can reduce it to that like 20% range or, or even get below that 20% range, you know, I think um, Dayton would be in a lot better shape. And I think Elijah Weaver can definitely help with that, with, with his ability to, to move the ball and, and set up his teammates. Him and Nokeji, to me, have both just made huge strides over the last few weeks. And I feel like it's almost just them getting more comfortable with the pieces around them. That, to me, is why I've gone in the last three weeks from, uh, are we sure Dayton's going to finish above 500? To, yeah, they're, they're in that second group in this conference, the four, five, six type teams and really shouldn't be any lower. I just feel like what Weaver's been doing since he's gotten healthy with his smart attacks and like you mentioned, not turning the ball over at the same rate as Chapman yeah. is the biggest reason why Crutcher's found the open lanes and kind of found his own aggressiveness. I think Weaver's kind of had an infectious attitude on the other two guards. Yeah, I would agree. And you know, he, he really just, like you said, he, he opens it up for, for the offense to, to be able to, to do a lot of different things more than, than Rodney. And I think, you know, he's been able to, to really lock down those turnovers and, and it's, you know, unfortunately been the, the calling card, but, but just keep, if he keeps improving it. And, and I think it just really the him and Zinni, you know, more playing time, um, getting kind of knocking the rust off of, of not playing and, and sitting on the bench or not playing because, you know, you've been waiting for the NCAA to clear you. Um, more experience, more playing together. And, and, and I think those numbers will keep moving in the right direction. So we'll close it out with this. What's your prediction for the, for the Flyers here? They've lost two bad games already. They've kind of gotten knocked behind the eight ball in terms of fighting for a double bye. Um, all these people who think that they might still be in the at-large discussion, I, no. I mean, I, I no. personally say, like, yeah, let's maybe uh, go undefeated from here right. on out before we have yeah. that conversation. But just how, how are you feeling? Where do you think this team's going to be come mid-March? I, I think they'll be outside of that um, top four. I, I think, unfortunately, the, the damage will be done. Um, the, those two losses, you know, they, they had a really just really easy start to the A-10 schedule. You know, LaSalle, George Mason, Fordham, you know, anything less than, than three and oh in those games. And, and you're really behind the eight ball um, with the George Washington, that second game canceled. Um, they have two tough ones away at VCU and away at St. Louis. Um, the conference always beats itself up, but I think Dayton's unfortunately going to be involved in that. I see them around 10 and eight, or, well, I guess we'll see if they play this George Washington game. Um, but if they do around 10 and eight, um, maybe 11 and seven, if, if we get lucky, um, but I, I just think it, it's going to all come down to, to Richmond. And, you know, hopefully the, the good thing about, we, we were just talking about Elijah Weaver and, and um, Zimmy, you know, hopefully they're running on full cylinder. They're, you know, finally integrated with the team and Dayton can be playing its best basketball when it comes to uh, conference tournament time, because there's just, there, I think I did the back of the napkin math like you. Um, I think they basically have to win out to, to be an at-large contention. And um, using Ken Palm's uh, win percentage 
for, for each game remaining game, there's basically less than a, a 1% chance that they'll, they'll, that they'll win out. So it's all going to come down to Brooklyn. Um, I just want to see the team moving in the right direction, continuing to, um, continuing to prove, continuing to, to knock down those turnovers and, you know, get Rodney healthy to help on the defensive end and then hopefully win uh, a couple games in Richmond or a couple games in Brooklyn, maybe Richmond. We'll see where, where the uh, conference tournament actually happens. I mean, to me, I completely agree. I think the at-large is basically out of the question. And to me, the goal would really be just make sure you get into that 4-5 area. Then you most likely avoid having to play all three of SLU, Bonnie's, and Richmond. Maybe things line up that you only end up having to play one of them. And if that happens, then the path starts to become pretty clear. And if they get Chapman back and these guys are playing that the way they've been the last few weeks, they can hang with any of those teams in Brooklyn. So Yeah, definitely. So, Matt Ryan, the king of the stats, thank you for coming on. Um, anything to plug besides your Twitter accounts? Uh, yeah. So like you said, uh, if you want just, you know, strictly Atlantic 10 stats only, uh, follow me at A10 stats. If you want a little Dayton, little A10 stats, a little Celtic football club, a little Cleveland sports, uh, follow me at Matt Ryan 86. Uh, but other than that, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for joining us for the second straight year. Great stuff. Once again, um, just keep firing out those awesome graphs. Maybe you can put some stuff together, help out uh, Chris Pyle as he goes through his teaching year. Um, <laughs> might, be, might be able to do something interesting for his students, but thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. So that does it for today's episode of the Three Bid League Pod. Once again, just want to thank our terrific guest host for the day, Matt Ryan. Uh, our normal Matt will be back soon. Don't you guys worry. But for now, if you enjoyed the pod, just be sure to give us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Always appreciate it. Anything that we can do better, anything that you've really enjoyed that you think we got to keep doing, just send us something on Twitter or to our email, number3bidleague at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Everybody just keep staying safe out there.